and it's from 2 Corinthians. Um, after I've read it, I'm going to say the phrase, this is the word of God, and then join with me in saying thanks be to God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Reading from verse 1. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints. For I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians. Telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before Andy comes to speak to us, we're going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a generous God and you give your children good gifts. We thank you for your word, the great gift by which you reveal yourself. And we ask that you would inform our minds, that you would warm our hearts, that you would raise us in our affections with, by your word. 
And ultimately, our minds and our hearts would lead to transformed lives. That we would show Christ, that we would bear the image of God in the person of Christ that more clearly, that more consistently. That we would not reflect others or what people want us to show, but we would show Christ in good times and in bad times. Speak, Lord, as we hear. Amen. Good. Well, please keep your Bibles open at that passage. We're going to be looking uh, this evening at chapters 8 and 9, which may I say are probably more familiar than the average chapters in uh, 2 Corinthians. These are probably chapters that you've heard the odd uh, sermon uh, about. Uh, these are the kind of chapters that are often wheeled out uh, as sermon support for your church giving project or on your annual giving Sunday or in your church giving leaflets. There will often be bits uh, from these uh, chapters in those sorts of documents and uh, for understandable reasons. But we do have a tendency to kind of lift these two chapters out of their situation in 2 Corinthians. And what I want to do this evening is to try and read these chapters within the letter why does Paul address these issues in this, this letter, in this place, and for what reasons? Um, the presenting reason is that the Corinthians have stopped collecting for the collection. And uh, there are a couple of obvious reasons for that uh, within the letter. One is uh, the uncomfortable relationships there have been recently between Paul and the Corinthians. There's been uh, the very painful visit and the severe letter. And you can understand, can't you, that when you've had uncomfortable interaction with somebody for a while, you're not quite so uh, enthusiastic about buying into his financial scheme. The second reason may be that uh, it may be the influence of the false apostles who've arrived in Corinth. Uh, we've noted already how they seem to have cast doubt on Paul's financial integrity as part of their way of undermining the Corinthians' confidence in him. And so maybe for that reason, they've become less certain about giving money to Paul's project. Now, the, the collection for the Jerusalem churches is a fascinating enterprise. And we meet it not just in 2 Corinthians. So I want to spend just the first few minutes of uh, this evening, um, going elsewhere in the New Testament to look at the significance of this enterprise that's obviously uh, ground to a halt temporarily. Uh, let me turn you to Romans chapter 15, please. Just flip back a little bit uh, earlier on in the scriptures, although a little later in time. 2 Corinthians written from Macedonia, probably in AD 55, Romans written almost certainly from Corinth, probably a year or so later. Paul spends some time in Corinth before departing with the collection to Judea. 
And in chapter 15 of Romans, Paul speaks about the collection and what it's designed to do. So uh, let me read from verse 22 of Romans 15. Paul writing from Corinth to Christians in Rome, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, presumably the regions he's been in, Macedonia, Achaia, Asia, and so on, uh, and have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's where Corinth is, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave by, for Spain by way of you, I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So do you notice Paul is wanting to join up the Gentile churches with the church back in Jerusalem and Judea? We've benefited spiritually from them. Uh, we want them to benefit materially from you. He's trying to forge links there. Look how he goes on. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Notice he wants them to pray. What does he want them to pray for? Verse 31, that he'll be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea so that his service for Jerusalem, namely his bringing money to Jerusalem, will be acceptable to them. Now, something very interesting. Notice the phrase he looks in verse uses in verse 31. Apparently, there are unbelievers in Judea who may get in the way of Paul's collection being effective when it arrives. I wonder if you remember, just turn back on to 2 Corinthians 7. This morning we looked at, sorry, it's chapter 6. This morning we looked at 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Suggesting that in context, Paul is saying, our heart is open to you. Open your hearts to us. Don't be associated with unbelievers. In context, that might be pointing towards these pseudo-Christian, pseudo-apostles who've arrived in Corinth. I wonder if the language in Romans 15 is significant in that. I want to be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. People like that. Who's going to get in the way of his service to Judea arriving and, and, and hitting the ground and having impact? Well, the, exactly the kind of people who are now in Corinth getting in the way of his Gentile mission. So do you see, Paul has a big scheme in view here. He wants to connect up the Gentile churches with the Jerusalem church. 
And he knows there's going to be opposition back in Judea to that. Uh, look at Acts chapter 20, please, quickly. Here we get some more background. Here we see it actually happening. Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul, verse 1, departs to Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, almost certainly meaning Achaia, uh, where Corinth is. He spent three months there when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Judea through Macedonia. Look who comes with him, Sapata the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, they're from Ephesus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Notice that list of people and from different churches, some of them from the South Galatian churches, some of them from the Macedonian churches, um, some from Ephesus, the Asian churches. Why all these representatives from different churches? Answer, because they are the delegation being sent with the collection to Jerusalem. They're the representatives of the Gentile churches. What happens when they arrive in Jerusalem? Turn on to chapter 21. 21.17, when we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders are present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. But notice what they say. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believe they are all zealous for the law. Now that's a very striking phrase. He comes back to, to Jerusalem with the money and the delegates and the account of the Gentile ministry and they glorify God but they say all the believers here are zealous for the law. And of course that's been Paul's big problem. That these zealous for the law guys interfere with what he's doing among the Gentiles because he does not require the Gentiles to come under the law of Moses. And that's exactly the situation he's uh, dealing with in Corinth. Now, let me step back from this and just observe, this collection is a massive enterprise. It's a massive organizational thing, getting all these people together from all these churches with all the money and sending them to Rome and arriving in Rome. It's a big enterprise. Why is he doing it? He's doing it so that the Jerusalem church will recognize the validity of his gospel ministry and the way he does it among the Gentiles. Namely, that he does not require Gentiles to be circumcised and to come under Moses. And as we've noted, in this letter, that's such a big issue. Chapter 3. Are they going to come under the glorious-looking mosaic ministry or the more glorious but rubbish-looking New Covenant ministry? It's been the big issue in this letter. And so the collection is part of that issue. If the collection comes off, that may validate in the eyes of the Jerusalem church the kind of ministry that Paul's been doing among the Gentiles. Do you see how joined up they are? The collection is not separate from the issues going on in the church in Corinth. 
It's a big issue. And so one of the aims of 2 Corinthians, now go back to 2 Corinthians 8, please. One of the aims of 2 Corinthians is to get this big thing going again. Because it has huge gospel implications if it comes off. It's a fascinating enterprise and very complicated. Now, um, this, these are not such complicated chapters in terms of the argument. And what we'll do this evening is just uh, wander our way through the argument and then draw out some implications at the end. How does Paul encourage the Corinthians to get going with the money again? Well, the first thing he does is, says, Corinthians, look at the Macedonians for a moment. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he'd started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. First thing he does, chaps, look at the Macedonians. Look how the grace of God has worked in them. Um, why are they poor? Well, possibly because of the persecution that they've endured. If you read the book of Acts, Thessalonica, Berea, extreme persecution there from uh, the Jewish community uh, in response to those who've taken the gospel on board. He says, look at what they've done. Despite their poverty, despite their hardship, they've given miles more than anybody could possibly have expected them to give. They've been really generous. Indeed, they were so eager to do it, they begged us for the favor of doing it. We didn't compel them. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And verse 7 is where it gets to its punchline. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, if you're familiar with 1 and 2 Corinthians, these words are very Corinthian words. The Corinthians see themselves as being faith guys. We have great faith for miraculous things in Corinth. They see themselves as being rich in speech. If you were here for 1 Corinthians a couple of years ago, their richness in speech is one of the big things in the letter. They see themselves as being specially gifted in the, in the speaking department. Knowledge, it's another big 1 Corinthian word. They see themselves as being the knowledgeables. Earnestness is a word that Paul uses in, in chapter 7, verse 11 to describe the godly grief that they have demonstrated towards him as a result of the letter that he sent. The Corinthians are very strong in things centered on them. 
their faith for the miraculous, their speaking ability, their knowledge, how clever they are, their earnestness even, they're weak on things for others. And so Paul is saying in verse 7, okay guys, show me how excellent you are then. Get your money out. <laughs> he doesn't say it quite like that, does he? But he says it more subtly than that. But that is what he's saying. If you're so excellent in all these departments, show us your excellence in this department as well. Show that you're as special as you say you are and think you are. It's kind of playing them at their own game here because they do think themselves special and different. See that you excel in this act of grace also. He very quickly follows this up with a whole bunch of things. He doesn't want them to misunderstand him. He doesn't want to misunderstand. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying this. One, this is not a command, chaps. This is not a command. I've got no word from the Lord for you about this. It's a voluntary thing. Verse 8, the faith of others is genuine. Prove the genuineness of your faith. It's not a command, but prove how genuine your faith is. Verse 9, show the Christ-likeness that you think you have. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So show the same grace. He is very generous. Are you going to be generous? Uh, second, it's not a new idea. Verse 10. In this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also desire to do it. It's, it's not a new plan. I'm just asking you to get going with something you already want to do. In fact, you really did want to do it. Verse 10. And I want you to desire to do it now. Apparently the desire to do it has kind of dwindled. He almost wants the desire to do it more than the thing itself. I want you to want to do it. I want you to display the kind of generosity that God has shown to you. Don't misunderstand, he says, I don't want you to give more than you have, verse 12. It's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And don't misunderstand, I don't want to burden you while others are eased, verse 13. Simply that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. Verse 15 is interesting. Anyone know where that quotation comes from, verse 15? Well, if you look in your margin, you'll find it comes from Exodus 16. It's gathering manna in the wilderness. What happens at the gathering manna in the wilderness? The people, go, the people of Israel go out, they gather manna in the wilderness, and they all have enough. 
All the rescued community has enough for them. What does he want to accomplish by quoting that here? He wants the Jerusalem Christians and the Gentile Christians to recognize that they are all legitimately in the rescued community. By the sharing of stuff, he wants them to recognize that God has been at work and rescued them all, that they all belong. So don't misunderstand. Then, he says, your money's going to be in good hands. That's basically what verses 16 following say. Thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. He not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him, he's a good guy. You know he's a good guy. With him, we're sending the brother who's famous among all the churches for his preaching in the gospel, of the gospel. He's not named this brother, whoever is. He is, but evidently uh, when he comes, the Corinthians will recognize that he's famous among all the churches. And not only that, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Do you remember that there seems to have been some uh, accusation that Paul is being financially improper, not handling money properly? Well, here Paul says, look, I'm sending you Timothy. I know you trust him. I'm sending the approved guy, the guy that the other churches approve of. He's a good guy. I'm doing this so that nobody can accuse me of mucking around with the money. And uh, verse 22 with them we're sending our brother, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they're messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about who about you to these men. In other words, in short, give the money. I'm sending good guys who everybody trusts and you trust. Don't let accusations of financial impropriety that have landed in my direction put you off giving the money. That's why he's sending all these people. It's in safe hands. There's no way it's going to be appropriated by those. Now, interestingly, when you read that list of delegates in Acts chapter 20, there's a load of people who come along with the collection. Why so many? Why from all the churches? To show, in part, to demonstrate that the money is being properly administered. He doesn't just send it with himself or with one person, but with a whole bunch of people so that nobody can accuse him of siphoning off some of the cash for himself. Uh, let me just say, sometimes it really matters not just what you're doing, but what you're seen to be doing. Sometimes that really matters for gospel ministry. Sometimes you have to get out of your way to demonstrate beyond all doubt that you're doing something the right way. 
because sometimes people can make mischief from things that are not done in that way. And money's a particularly sensitive issue. So uh, just think about that in your churches, in your CUs, in your organizations, whatever they are. Being seen to handle money rightly is very important. And sometimes you just have to go the extra mile in doing things that are frankly not all that necessary in practical terms, but are necessary so that you cannot be accused of mismanaging money. Brothers and sisters, all over the world, Christian leaders mismanage money. It's one of the great temptations of being in Christian leadership. Why? Because you have access to loads of other people's cash. You just do if you're a Christian leader. And you have to make an effort, a conscious effort, to distance yourself from that. It is incredibly easy to be enticed by that. All over the world, Christian leaders siphon off money that has not been given for the purpose that they should siphon it off. Paul is scrupulous in this regard, and it's an important lesson to bear in mind. Uh, partly he's doing it because there have already been accusations of financial impropriety. But I take it that that just reflects what he generally does. How you are seen to manage it is very important. Okay, so there's the next, the next motivation. Your money's in safe hands. <laughs> On to chapter 9. Next motivation. And here it gets really interesting. The next motivation is everybody knows how ready you are. Everybody already knows how ready you are. Now it's superfluous for me to write about to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Saying that, Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready... Wouldn't that be embarrassing, he says. I would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. That's a fascinating argument, this. It's a fascinating argument. He just says, basically, I've already told everybody and wouldn't it be embarrassing if the money wasn't there on the day? It's quite a powerful argument, that, isn't it? Especially to a group of people who think they're so special. They think they're not like all the other churches. They think they've got gifts that the other churches haven't got. They think they've got knowledge that the other churches haven't got. They think they've got speaking ability that the other churches haven't got. <laughs> and to these very proud people, he says, wouldn't it be embarrassing, chaps, if the Macedonians happened to come and they found the money wasn't there. That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Uh, it isn't an exaction, verse 5. <laughs> but there's a load of pressure being put on at this point. Do it. You've said you'll do it. Do it. Fulfill your promise. Don't bottle out now. Don't stop doing it. You've got a lot more money than the Macedonians have. It would be very embarrassing if those... Macedonians who'd given out of extreme poverty came along and found that you rich guys, who were so gifted, couldn't deliver on the money front. That really would be embarrassing. It's a very powerful argument, that. Very powerful. 
Everyone knows who, how ready you are. It would be embarrassing. And the final reason he gives is what you find in verses 6 following. I put this all together because I think it starts and ends uh, really with the language of sowing and reaping. Cause and effect. And I think what this section from 6 to, 20 to, uh, 6 to, to 15 is doing is saying, I want you to know that your contribution to this enterprise will really help the advance of the gospel. It's superfluous for me to write, sorry, uh, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he's distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice he's looking to the effects of this thing. There's going to be a harvest. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to, givings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, what's Paul saying here? Well, right from the start, there's an emphasis on the effects of the collection. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow generously, reap a big harvest. We'll come back to the effects by the end because he starts with the effects and he ends with the effects. But in between, he says lots about the character of God. God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because God is like that. He is, verse 9, quoting from Psalm 112, he is a God who distributes things generously to humanity. He's just like that. Verse 10 is very like verse 8. God is able to supply things to you so that you may abound in supplying things to others. And that, he says, will lead others to thank God for you. Now, here we get back to the effects. By their approval, verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Do you see what he's really interested in here? What he's really interested in is not just that the oppressed believers in Judea get some financial help. He is interested in that. But he's not only interested in that. What does he want them to do? He wants them to approve of the service of the Gentile churches. 
he looks forward to them glorifying God because of the money that comes to them. He looks forward to them, verse 13, he looks forward to the Judean Christians being glad about the Corinthian response to the gospel. He looks forward to the Judean Christians longing for and praying for the Gentile churches. Now, that would be a major accomplishment, would it not? Bearing in mind that all over Paul's Gentile ministry, there is interference from Jerusalem-based Christians who try and impose the law of Moses on the Gentile believers. Paul is looking forward to a totally different mindset among the Judean Christians. Instead of saying, well, I th instead of saying, well, that Paul, I'm not sure about that ministry. It's not nearly Moses enough. I'm not sure about that ministry. He's not requiring them to come under the law. I'm not sure about that ministry. We ought to do something about that. I'm not sure about that. What a difference it would make if the Jerusalem church and those in it and around it, instead of thinking, mm, I'm just not sure about all that going on over there, were to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've shown to them. We are so grateful that you've shown grace to them and brought them into the team. We are so grateful for their money and the generosity that you, Lord, have shown to us in our difficulty through them. That would be a change of mind, would it not? If that could be accomplished, then we might see less of the interference that is so prominent in this letter from Jewish people looking like believers coming and mucking up Paul's Gentile mission. Do you see? There's a big gospel agenda here in the collection, a big gospel agenda. Yes, he wants financial aid, but more than that, he wants the Jew Jerusalem church to recognize the validity of the Gentile churches. That's why the collection's been put together. It's a remarkable enterprise. Says Paul, I long for the day when they will regard you Gentiles as proper recipients of God's grace without coming under Mosaic law. So do you see how this fits in with the letter? It's much more joined up. It's not just a, by the way, get back to the money thing. It's very much in line with the whole of the rest of the thrust of the letter. I want to deliver you from this kind of interference the collection is a big part of that. Okay, let's step back and just make a few observations before we close. It's been a long day, and it's a warm evening, and it's just after supper, and people are beginning to melt into their chairs. So just a few closing remarks. One, what is this? This is, first, a correction to Corinthian sinfulness. They think themselves special. <laughs> Actually, the Corinthians are just as proud as the Judean churches are but for different reasons. The Corinthians look down on everybody else. Read 1 Corinthians and get the feel of that. They think they're special. Uh, their horizons are narrow. 
just as the horizons are narrow in the Judean churches. Paul wants them to be looking at the world. Remember chapter 5, verse 14? 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, and he died for all that those who live might no longer have narrow, self-centered horizons, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's stretching the envelope here, theologically. Corinthians, demonstrate God's grace. Stop being narrow-minded and focused in on yourselves. Second, this is a stroke against the opponent's um, I suggested to you earlier that there have been accusations of cunning and deception regarding Paul and his handling of money. Great care is taken in these two chapters to emphasize how blamelessly this money will be handled. So he's deliberately trying to undercut the opponent's accusations. Three, as we've already discussed, this collection is a big defense of Paul's Gentile ministry. That is significantly what the collection is for. Paul sees the big picture. He's got the big picture in view here. The whole gospel work in the whole world is in view here. And fourth... He wants the Corinthians to demonstrate behavior consistent with grace. He never lets go of the grace of God in this chapter, in these chapters. Look at uh, chapter one, 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia. And he ends, 9.15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. <laughs> now, in chapters which are all about God's grace, he exerts significant pressure. Everybody knows how generous, everybody knows you're ready and the, and the Macedonians are coming and it wouldn't it be embarrassing but remember God's grace. He never lets God's grace uh, drift away from the argument here. He wants the Corinthians to be godlike in the way they relate to others. He wants the Judeans to believe that the Gentiles are recipients of God's grace and don't need the law in order to be proper recipients of God's grace. So this is very much something that belongs to the Corinthian situation and to the purpose of the letter and to Paul's great concern for the gospel getting to the world. Let me just say this as a closing remark. Never, ever underestimate the scope of what your money can accomplish. Don't ever underestimate that. Probably this was a significant collection of money and probably the Corinthians ended up being very significant contributors because there were some rich people in Corinth. The Macedonians weren't rich. Presumably they couldn't give all that much. It was more than Paul expected them to give. But think of the scope of that gift. Think what it's designed to do. Validate the Gentile ministry to the Jerusalem church. It's a big goal. Money is particularly powerful in many ways in human interactions. 
Money, of course, is a human invention, really, isn't it? It's, it's something we've invented to do stuff, you know, rather than swapping sheep or corn or, you know, whatever it happens to be. We have a common currency that's much easier to swap. What is the one thing money is absolutely not invented for? Anyone? There's one thing that money is not invented for. Giving away. That's not what money was invented for. No human being ever invented a common currency in order to give it away. That's not what it's for. The invention of money is designed to make it easier to acquire and easier to prosper. What the gospel does to your money is it makes the human invention of money which is not designed for giving away and entirely subverts it. It's a very powerful thing. And when people see other people being generous with their stuff and their money, that is of unusual impact, often. And it doesn't need to be much, but the fact that you've reached into your wallet is just countercultural. It's a very powerful thing. So you probably won't be a person in life who feels that you've got gigabucks and can finance huge, huge things. But in many ways, that's what Paul is not arguing here. He's arguing that God is able to give you enough to be generous. It doesn't have to be masses in order to be generous. It just needs to be something that you do with your money, which is not what money is designed for. Money has never been designed for giving away. And what the gospel does to money uh, is makes it something that expresses God's grace rather than human acquisitiveness. Never underestimate. Even if you never have much, do not underestimate what can be done with it. It's a very powerful tool in God's hands that was never designed by human beings to be such. That's what the gospel does. So folks, I hope you see that this letter, uh, this, this joins in with the rest of the letter. It's very much part of it. Let's pray together. Let's pray. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a, a generous and kind God, generously giving all the time to your creation and to the people that you've made, pouring good things into life all the time, even to those who are totally unthankful and grateful. We praise you that you are like that, and we pray uh, that you would make us increasingly people who reflect your character. Make us generous and kind, we pray. Make us concerned for all sorts of things as you are, but not least for uh, your people who are suffering because of the gospel, and for the advance of your gospel in the world. We thank you for the apostles' great plan here to do something which will 
safeguard his Gentile ministry in the eyes of the Jerusalem church. And we pray that in the same sort of way, you would help us to be thoughtful and uh, inventive about how we can use what we have and what others have for the advance of the gospel of Christ. We thank you that you've given us so much. Please help us not to have narrow horizons, but to see the world and to consider what you're doing in the world and to help our finances to fall into line with your great plans. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, can I just add, uh, we'll be running through... Uh, We'll be running through the rest of the letter tomorrow morning. We won't go through it all in detail. We'll just focus in on one part. But it might help just to have a skim through uh, chapters 10 to the end beforehand if you're able to do that.